Good morning, everybody. It is a joy to be with you, worship God with you, uh, even sing the intro eat with our entire praise team, and uh, now share the word of God. Why don't we start today's sermon with a prayer? Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. We are continuing on with our sermon series on the book of First Samuel. We are on chapter 22, so please turn with me to First Samuel chapter 22. We'll be reading from verses 6 to 23. And if you have a pew Bible that you can find in front of you, underneath the chair, you can find it on page 229. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 to 23. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Himelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. 
And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the king of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The title of this sermon is not so encouraging. It's like, why do you have to talk about this one? Well, it's because um, we're kind of on pace, and what we do is what we do is um, we just go verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And this part, this portion, we are going to talk about the enemies of God. And so, who are the enemies of God? And some people don't like this topic much. Why talk about enemies? Why not talk about friends? And it stems of this idea that maybe many of us are exposed to of not wanting to talk about sin. Why talk about sin, guilt, depression, angst, anger? Why not instead talk about love? Well, you need both. You need both. A lopsidedness to one kind of reinforcement will make someone unbalanced. You just can't yell at a child all day, and you also can't just tell them just good things. Uh, I saw this one video online, and it's these videos of um, this like people who tell platitudes for a living. Uh, they tell platitudes and they extrapolate the platitude, like you know, sticks and stones, and they'll talk about thirty minutes about sticks and stones or something to that effect. And it's like. Um, this one was about like people who are rich and famous uh, trying to help other people who get to get rich and famous. But the interesting part is that these people who are trying to tell other people how to get rich and famous got rich and famous by offering courses and seminars on how to get rich and famous. And so I, it's, maybe it's comical. But you'll always have those followers who would watch these, you know, seminars or take these courses who will start to swear by these methods. Anyway, one of these fellows is on video and he's giving this piece of advice. And he's telling this piece of advice to his listeners, to his audience, that don't tell people not to do something. That's what he's saying. And he gives an example. When training pilots... Never tell them to hit the side of the mountain because what they end up doing is always, they end up always hitting the side of the mountain because they're focused on it. 
Instead, tell them to focus on something else. And then they'll focus on that and not hit the side of the mountain. That's, that's the advice. That was the video. And it went viral. And I'm thinking, watching this, I'm thinking, yes, too bad the captain of the Titanic didn't have this sage advice. Wait, nope, it didn't work in the Titanic because he didn't see that uh, iceberg glacier. It doesn't work there. And sometimes you have to tell the pilot, hey, don't hit the side of the mountain. Maneuver away from the side of the mountain. And that's not a really bad thing to do at times. And if the pilot, even though you tell him not to hit the side of the mountain, he still hits it, maybe he's just a bad pilot. And maybe he probably won't get a second try. But you see, it's good to have goals that you set your eyes on, but it's also good to know the warnings, the red flags, to show you that this is not a real thing, or this is a false flag, or this is dangerous. Things that may look like the goal, but it isn't. Things that are deceiving. If you follow it, it will lead to your demise. And the warnings presented in this chapter are for those who believe that they are good. Following God. They believe that they're following God even, but in the end, their path leads to destruction. Just like it says in Proverbs chapter 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. For many, they believe that they are doing right, but the scripture warns that it is anything but. And so let us pick off or pick up from where we left off last week. And the first point is the setup, the setup of God's enemies, the setup. And so we start off in verse 6 with Saul under a Tamarisk tree in Gibeah. Gibeah is the place where Saul was from. And under the Tamarisk tree probably meant that it was some sort of platform where he could address his other clansmen, the other Benjaminites. And he starts this pity party by alleging that everyone has conspired against him. They're all withholding information from him, especially when it comes to this son of Jesse. Now, it's significant how he addresses David as the son of Jesse. He never says his name, and that's for many reasons. But this son of Jesse makes a covenant with his own son, and no one tells him about it. Who is this son of Jesse? Is he going to give you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of his armies? And Saul says that to contrast himself with David. He's really being a good politician here. By saying that David is not going to make you rich and famous, he's implicitly saying that if you follow me, perhaps you will. But he's not really promising overtly that he will. He's saying, is David going to give you stimulus checks for the rest of your life? Cancel your student debts? Are you going to vote for David? And look what David did, or the son of Jesse did. He split up my household. And he's saying all these things in the platform of the Tamarisk tree. And right after he goes to that part, he says in verse 9, Doeg answered. Doeg knew when to respond. 
At the height of the self-pity waves just cascading over the crowds there at Gibeah, I, Saul, am languishing over all this untrustworthiness among all my people. That's when Doeg speaks. And read how he answers as well. This is how Doeg answers. I saw the son of Jesse. So he's following in that language and that address to David. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, if you went over with me last week's chapter, we see that this is actually pretty significant. What he says is significant. He also refers to him as the son of Jesse, a term used by Saul in derision and contempt for David. He saw the son of Jesse at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord on his behalf. He fed him and armed him with Goliath's sword. And you might remember that detail, O king. The sword he got from the man that he killed where they started to write and sing that song about how you killed thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. That's what is the tone of what Doeg is saying. Doeg is a liar. Doeg is a liar. Wait, wait. I read the chapter with you last week too. Why are you calling him a liar? Isn't what he is saying in these words technically all true? Isn't what he's saying technically all true? David actually writes a psalm about Doeg. Psalm 52 is about Doeg. And this is what David writes from verse 2 about Doeg. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now, I think this is significant for us to understand in today's age because a lot of things you may hear will be what you might say is technically true. Technically true while being deceitful, hence, it is a lie. What we might label technically true just means we'll take some true data points and manipulate them to deceive you. Today's political age is pretty, um, pretty crazy. I, don't, I, I, don't, I think that's the word I'm looking for. It's not just divisive, it's insanity. There's so many examples that I could have thought of, but I'll just take some very recent political headlines from certain news outlets. If you have been following politics, then Kansas has been on the news. And these are the political headlines that you would read in the news or on TV. This is what the reporters would say. And I'm going to quote, abortion rights upheld in Kansas. Abortion rights upheld in Kansas. That's the headline. Or another reporter would say, voters have triggered a strong backlash affirming the state's constitution which protects abortion rights. Another one, this was a massive show of support for abortion rights and in conservative, traditionally red state, 
less than six weeks after Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, voters in the state of Kansas sent a clear message that the right to an abortion should be protected. Another one, this was the moment the results came in. Kansas voters overwhelmingly decided to protect access to abortion. I'll give you just a few more. A big win for abortion rights advocates, what it means for the midterms and America after Roe v. Wade. Another one, we begin with some important primary election results, including a major victory for supporters of abortion rights. They celebrated in Kansas last night after voters rejected a move to remove abortion right protections from the state's constitution. Now, you're listening to the news, you're reading these headlines, and I've read just some of them to you. What would you think after listening to this? It would seem like the voters in Kansas wanted to protect what was in the state's constitution to protect abortion rights. That's what you, it, would, it sounds like it at least. It sounds like in the state's constitution, it says that there is a right to an abortion. That's what it sounds like. And it sounds like the people voted. They want to keep it. In 2019, in Kansas, the state Supreme Court discovered, apparently, a right to an abortion in the state constitution. They discovered it. It wasn't there before, but in 2019, the Supreme Court in that state said, whoa, there, were, there it is, there it is. It was just under the bed. I just needed the flashlight to turn on on my iPhone. There I found it. It's not written in the constitution, but there it is, it's a right. But that's what a law is. A law needs to be written, but they somehow inferred and somehow surmised that there is a right in the Constitution. This is how the court ruled, that the state Constitution incorporated language from the Declaration of Independence that recognized that certain rights predated the country. The Declaration's natural, inalienable rights, the court said, included personal autonomy, which covered decisions about abortion. This is what the majority opinion read. This right allows a woman to make her own decisions regarding her body health, family formation, and family life decisions that can include whether to continue a pregnancy. So they just discovered it. It was never written. This is not what the judicial branch does. The judicial branch interprets law that has been written, passed, legislated by the legislature, but they just discovered it. But if you just read the headlines, it looks like there was a law, and all of a sudden they wanted to ban it. And in fact, what the vote was, the vote was to say that actually this was just made up. If you want to put in a law, you have to legislate it. You can't just make this amendment out of pure whole cloth. And that's what it was. It wasn't to ban abortion. It was just to say this law was never there. So we need to actually interpret it correctly. But that's not what you would hear reading the news. It would be kind of confusing. Even listening, if you start to compare, you'd be like, I am confused. I don't know what's going on. And that's the point. In August, on August 2nd, just a few days ago, there is this, uh, this so-called newspaper. They're called the New York Times. But they, they had an op-ed, and it was titled, this is, this is an amazing title. And this is the title. Why do we talk about miscarriage differently than abortion? That's the title. It's not, it's not comedy. It's not satire. 
This is the title. Why do we talk about miscarriage differently than abortion? This is, I'm going to quote just a sentence from the op-ed. The line between abortion and pregnancy loss has always been blurry. Yeah, no, I'm going to say no to that one, but this is what they write. The line between abortion and pregnancy loss has always been blurry, but over the past few decades, the anti-abortion movement, that's a great way to term pro-lifers, the anti-abortion movement has forged a cultural bright line between the two experiences, promoting dueling narratives of bad mothers who voluntarily cause fetal death versus good mothers who grieve unpreventable pregnancy loss. That's, that's actually in the op-ed. So <clears throat> the real question that they're asking is, why do we see someone accidentally falling down the stairs differently than someone being shoved down the stairs? It's very confusing to me. And then you start reading this. It's like, yeah, I'm very confused too. What's the difference between falling down and being shoved down? Now, if you constantly are bombarded with this kind of information, what if this was the only source of information you had access to? What if it was running all day on your phone like it is mine? <laughs> Just all day, all you see are headlines like this, and you're like, do I believe this? Is this right? Is this, is this the entire truth? Looks like the data points seem, seem pretty correct, but is this really the truth? Some of you, after listening to this, would rather just shut it all off. Let's just, I don't want to talk about it. It's just too much. It creates too much stress in my life. I have other things to think about. I have other responsibilities. See, but the Bible doesn't let us do that. It forces us to look at the terror and bloodbath of what deception does. Doeg was there. He knew of Ahimelech's apprehension. He saw Ahimelech trembling, like it said in verse 1 of 20, chapter 21, and he conveniently left that part out. And when you conveniently leave certain data points out, you start to paint a certain picture. Although these data points might be true, you are starting to paint a certain picture. And he painted this certain picture to Saul, who, by the way, is already on this conspiracy bend that everyone is out to get him. Everyone's out to get me. And Doeg says just the right things at the right time. And so Saul summons Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the priests at Nob. Saul uses the same format when he calls Ahimelech, he calls Ahimelech by his father's name, you son of Ahitub. It looks like someone made up his mind already. He has had enough information. There's no more data that he needs. He's done. He doesn't want to listen to anything more. Son of Ahitub, the same thing he did in derision for David. But this is how Ahimelech answers. Ahimelech answers, here I am, my Lord. A showing of servility. And Saul's accusation is direct, even blunt. Why have you conspired against me? It's not. It's not. Can you defend yourself from this accusation that Doeg said? That's not what he said. Look, I have this idea. It might even sound like a conspiracy. But is this true? That's not what he asked. 
This is what Saul asked. Why did you conspire against me? And this is what a lot of people do. When they have found enough, when you have become emotionally attached, invested, you can't be shaken with any other data point. It doesn't matter. You don't want to listen to anything else. You are already set in this path. And that's why Saul goes, why did you conspire? So Ahimelech says an answer. It's firm, but it's respectful. He didn't know anything about a conspiracy, not a little or a lot. In fact, listening to you is a little confusing. O king, isn't David one of your most faithful servants? Isn't he your son-in-law? And didn't I serve and give him blessings under your approval in the past? Didn't I intercede for him in the past as well under your approval? And through this, it seems that while Ahimelech had some misgivings, maybe he had some misgivings when David first came in, but he had no knowledge of the some whatever conspiracy that was against Saul, that Saul was conjuring up. That's the setup. That's the setup. The next point is the compulsion. The compulsion of God's enemies. So after hearing Ahimelech's response, Saul orders his guard. So he listens to Ahimelech's response, or does he? I don't know. But he turns to his guards and he goes, turn and kill Ahimelech and all the other priests. That seems a bit extreme, but that's what Saul says. Not just, well, not only kill Ahimelech, but turn and kill all the priests. None of the king's guards would turn and strike the priests of Yahweh. However, when Saul then turned to Doeg to kill the priests, Doeg turns and kills 85 priests. Now, when you see this, there is a significance to Ahimelech being called the son of Ahitub. Ahitub, Ahimelech, would all bring you back to the beginning of this book. Who is Ahitub? Well, Ahimelech's father is Ahitub. Ahitub has a father, and his name is Ichabod. And Ichabod has a father. His name is Phineas. And Phineas has a father, and his name is Eli. So who is Ahitub? Ahitub is the son of Ichabod, the son of Phineas, the son of the priest Eli. And if you remember, Eli in chapter 2 had a prophet come to him and reveal to him the rejection of him and his whole household by God. At the end of chapter 2, a prophet comes and gives this long prophecy against Eli and his household. But especially, I want to remind you of what he says in chapter 2, verse 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you, one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. You know, this prophecy may have been given 40 to 50 years ago, 
but it has now come to pass here in chapter 22. And this might be a tough pill to swallow, but we must swallow it nonetheless so that we understand that while what Doeg did was truly a gruesome and terrible thing, that being awful, and also fulfilling God's prophecy, they aren't mutually exclusive things. It doesn't absolve Doeg from his evil as we see in Psalm 52, but at the same time we see this terrifying truth. And this is the truth that we are being shown. Even in opposing God, even the enemies of God still bring to pass God's word. Even in their hostility to God and his servants, they end up carrying out his will. You know, I personally like playing games or strategy games where you can set up a situation where no matter what the opponent does, it's to your advantage. And that's how you can ensure your win in a strategy game like chess or even tic-tac-toe, right? Let's take a simple example. You move here, I connect this line. You block me here, I connect the other line. And while this illustration isn't perfect, and the reality is much more mysterious and spectacular, the early Christians understood this about God's will, and they even preached it. Peter in Acts chapter 2 would preach this in verse 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know, the disciples understood this. They not only preached this, they understood this, and their resolves became unbreakable. In just two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, they would pray this in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And while it won't lessen the pain, perhaps it won't lessen the pain of the suffering that Christians go through, there is this certainty of victory that steals the heart and gives the believer peace. This passage makes it clear that there is no way around it. God's will is to be done, and his enemies have no edge over him or his people. And like that strategy game, but played in infinite dimensions, God has his enemies outclassed at every step. The next point is the revealing, the revealing of God's enemies. This is a short point, but in verses 16 through 19, as time goes on, as time goes on, not only do we see who God's enemies are, but we also see the complete depravity of their character. Just like, I don't know, some of you are much too young, but when I was younger, abortion started out with this motto, safe, legal, and rare. That's, that's the motto it started out with. Didn't matter what political party, um, the Democrats, uh, whatever side you were on that party, they would say safe, legal, and rare. Abortion started out with that motto. What started out with this motto, safe, legal, and rare, has morphed into this is a woman's reproductive right, and it has morphed into most recently, you must now shout your abortion. 
We watch TV shows that depict women who get abortions now, not as someone who tragically would end the life of their child, but as a hero who went against the cultural grain so that they could get a hold of that golden idol. Saul, in commanding the execution of the 85 priests, may not have destroyed all Israel, but now Saul stands in the company of Pharaoh, who instituted the decree to murder all the Hebrew babies. He stands in the company of Jezebel, who tried to murder all the prophets of God. He stands in the company of Haman, who tried to have all the Jews killed in the book of Esther. See, Saul has been going further and further away from righteousness, further and further away from goodness, peace, further away from wisdom, and now he is in this dark place where anxiety, conspiracy, nonsense, and even murder constantly ravage his mind. He is under judgment, and that's what judgment looks like. Judgment looks exactly like this, where your mind is ravaged and you can't think logically anymore. It's just emotion. It's just anger. You can't take any other data points because you're set on your path, and that path is not to God. What's also ironic here is that when God commanded Saul back a few chapters ago, he commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites. God had judged the Amalekites were to be put to utter destruction. You need to obliterate them. Saul, hearing this command, doesn't do it. Rather, he saves what he wants to. And by saving what he wants, man, like, I, I know I need to kill everybody here, but this, this animal here looks really good. It seems like a shame to just kill it. What did the animal do, right? Let's take these animals. What about this thing over here? I, you know I'm supposed to burn it all, but you know what? Let's save it. That's how it started, though. He saved what he wanted to save, even though God said you need to completely annihilate, obliterate this. And it seems like a very small act of disobedience. This is a small thing. I mean, he killed a lot of the Malachites. It's a small thing, isn't it? But just a few chapters later, we see Doeg carry out his fury and anger against all the priests and the entire city of Nob. And this is what's ironic. In verse 19, this is what it says. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. He didn't just kill the priests. He decided to kill every single thing, even the animals. So ironically, while he didn't kill all the people God had commanded him to annihilate, he annihilates the entire priestly clan and all their belongings that serve God. And this is what we are reminded of. We think that what I'm doing right now is just a small, it's just a small disobedience. It's not a big thing. God will forgive. That's the attitude we have. What I'm doing now, the sexual sin, the sin of unbelief, the sin of undisciplinedness, and I don't, I don't even want to pray sometimes. We think it's just a small disobedience. 
When we think it's just a small disobedience, I believe we are thinking inaccurately. What we might consider to be small disobedience, it's a step that we're taking. Every time you move, you're taking a step. Even if it's a small disobedience, you think it's a small disobedience, but with each step we take, whether it's small or big, we're either getting closer to God or we are going further away from God. There is no such thing as you're staying still. In fact, nothing in the universe is ever still. Nothing in this entire universe is ever still. Everything is in constant motion. Everything. Don't be deceived. You are either being brought closer to God or you are falling further into judgment. And this is the final point. God's church, the remnant. The remnant. Even though it looked like Saul completely annihilated Nob and all its inhabitants, one of Abimelech's sons, Abiathar, escapes. He flees to David and tells him of all that has happened. And the contrast here is meant to stand out. Saul says to Abimelech this, you shall surely die. Saul goes to Abimelech, you shall surely die. And this is how David responds to Abiathar. David says to Abiathar, with me you shall be in safe keeping. That's the contrast. And we're meant to see it. You know, I jokingly uh, say to my wife, with some level of seriousness, she would always say, like, your jokes always have a level of truth uh, that you're trying to say to me. But um, I would say with some level of seriousness, seriousness to my wife, but it is really a joke about how terrible I think K-drama is. <clears throat> I think it's terrible. All that emotional manipulation, it makes one stupid. But I would say it's the same for following any one particular political candidate as well. If you're absolutely loyal to one political candidate, it bars you from debating ideas, it's a pure cult of personality, and it will make you stupid. But K-drama, with all its faults, with all its faults, it was actually banned in North Korea. You know, in every household in North Korea, they have VCRs and TVs. They just don't have food, but they have VCRs and TVs so that you can listen to propaganda while you starve. But they had banned K-dramas in North Korea. You can't watch it. Because even though what you watch in these Korean dramas are of people that are dysfunctional, overly dramatic, and over-the-top, with over-the-top emotional displays, even though you would see that in these dramas, you would also see that they ate three meals a day. And the food looks good. This is not just in North Korea. Joseph Stalin, when he was the czar of the Soviet Union, he banned the movie The Grapes of Wrath from being shown in the Soviet Union. You know, The Grapes of Wrath is a movie about the Great Depression. It's about one of the worst times in U.S. history. Why wouldn't you want to show that movie in the Soviet Union when the U.S. was an enemy? Well, it's because in the movie, even though it was about the most terrible time in U.S. history, well, one of them, the poor had trucks, and they could go wherever they wanted in this movie. And that's the point. As bad as things were, Abiathar's escape 
is not to be missed by the reader. It is a sign that God preserves his people even in the midst of destruction. God's priests may have seemed to be destroyed. Maybe they look like they were utterly destroyed, but we'll see later Abiathar escapes with an ephod and ministers to David for the entirety of David's reign as king. David always has a priest by his side. The world can butcher God's people, but it will never wipe out God's servants. God's will will always come to pass, and no one will be able to thwart it. And that's the assurance we have in Jesus Christ. We are his bride. We have something called the communion of saints. In the beginning of our service, we say something called the sursum corda, and that means we lift up our hearts to God. That means we recognize in this service right here, right now, God brings us to himself, so we lift up our hearts to him. This is the communion of the saints. And not only that, even the angels are present with us when we give service. This is shown to us in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer, the author is talking about how we didn't come to a place where you can touch like a blazing fire, like the edge of the mountain. That's what happened in Moses' time. Remember? They couldn't even touch the side of the mountain because it was so holy for them. So they needed to go near the mountain. They couldn't get to the mountain. And if any, even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. That's what God commanded. It was so terrifying that even Moses would say, quote, I tremble with fear. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says, in, starting from verse 22 in chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Don't you see, what God has assured us in Jesus Christ is that he brings us close to him in the communion of the saints, and that can never be broken because it is assured to us by Jesus. He is our mediator. And no matter what the world tried to do to Jesus, they even went as far as to kill him. It did not. In fact, God used it for atonement for the people. And we are saved when we believe. That's why now when we sing, we sing with all the saints of all times and places and with the angels. I had a privilege of singing the intro eat with the praise team. It's a reminder that we're all here to sing God's praises. It's not just 50 or 100 or 150 of us. It's all of God's saints singing his praises. All of the angels gathered around. And it is Christ now who gathers around his table. The communion of saints has a communion and fellowship and a table that he has gathered around us. And no enemy can stop that. And this is something that we must understand. Perhaps, perhaps we are people who have been deceived. And in by 
being deceived, we have become enemies of God. Whether you know it or not, emotion has encapsulated you, has enraptured you. You can't see anything. What God says, you just can't take. But this is what justification and sanctification is. God takes the reprobate mind. He takes the sinner's heart, and he changes it. And what you start to see is that God is truly good. He is kind. He gives us what we could never deserve. And he gives it to us abundantly. We were once enemies with God. We still continue to sin, but it's different now. We fight against sin. We hate sin because sin, sinning, is going against God. And so here, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, this is what Paul writes. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And now Christ's life is leading us into a place of true communion. This is an incredible gift that we have given, something that we are never to miss. Perhaps people will try to stop it, bar it, say you can't show this, but it will never be stopped. The kingdom of God will never be stopped, and it will continue to stretch until it has covered all of creation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that while we ourselves were once enemies with you, you in your kindness and mercy called us into your presence, called us into communion with you and now with one another. This is something that none of us ever deserved, even came close to deserving, and yet by sheer grace, by your love for us, you bring us now to this table. God, we pray that we would be able to recognize this grace and to live by it accordingly, that we may sing your praises, that we may always live our lives glorifying your holy name for the good gift that you've given us, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps God is reminding us too now to be encouraged that we are no longer to give in to fear, anxiety, anger, angst, but to understand his love for us and to fight this fight against sin, to wage war against the enemy. For now we are on God's side, and victory is assured in Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and let's pray that we would be able to live a life that is pleasing to God, living sacrifices that would lift up the name of Jesus and no other name, service that is pleasing to him, songs that will glorify him. Let's pray.